Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Stan Didham's helping bring hope to people living in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, Africa. They often don't even have citizenship or, you know, any documentation to prove that they're, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're sort of um, homeless in the worst possible sense, not even having a country uh, to live in. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of the worst of all possible worlds and just to me kind of exemplifies the kind of people that God would like us to be looking out for and giving our attention to. Stan Didham's next. After retiring from your career of 38 years, you might not typically think you'd shortly find yourself working in a refugee camp in Africa. But that's exactly what happened to Stan Didham's following his retirement from Bank of America. He also recently completed the requirements for an MA degree in humanitarian and disaster leadership at Wheaton College. He's on the board of directors for the International Association for Refugees, or IAFR, and he's on the advisory board of World Relief. Today, I'll be talking to him about his time at the refugee camp he described in the article, A Week in Kakuma Refugee Camp, Glimpses of Hope. Mr. Didams, uh, for starters, what can you tell us about the Kakuma refugee camp? Sure. Uh, The camp is located in northwest Kenya. Uh, It is in a relatively unwelcoming part of the country, uh, you know, no surprise that uh, the refugees would be would be deposited, if you will, in a, in a particular area of the country that was really not attractive. Uh, it is near the Sudan border, uh, the South Sudan border, uh, also borders Uganda, Ethiopia, and Somalia. And you know, if you think about those countries and the news. Uh, that has come out of those countries over the last, you know, two or three decades, uh, you will quickly realize those are all uh, countries that have had war, uh, uh, tribal conflict, internal conflict, and so forth. So uh, Kakuma is close to several uh, countries that have been plagued by war and conflict. And, um, and, and because of that, it has been a refuge for people fleeing those conflicts. When roughly was this refugee camp formed, and, and how many are there currently? It was formed in uh, 1992. Uh, it was initially just informally uh, formed, I guess you would say, because there were refugees coming from South Sudan primarily at that time uh, who just showed up, uh, started camping uh, along the banks of a seasonal river there, and uh, after some thousands of them showed up, the UNHCR, uh, the UN High Commission for Refugees, uh, realized that they they, they had a problem. Uh, They needed to provide, you know, basic uh, basics for all these people. And so the UNHCR established a camp in 92. Uh, It's grown to today to have a population of around 240,000 people. Hmm. So it's a the size of a, you know, a small city, really. Uh, and if you were to look at it, 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 it looks a lot like what you might have seen in uh, large 
poor countries, uh, kind of a slum sort of vibe to it, you know, sort of a shanty town kind of buildings made of corrugated metal and plastic sheeting and, and brush and, and so forth, all very densely crowned together. Um, and, uh, and, and 240,000 people call this place home, uh, and it, it is still growing in population. What is life like in well? I'm in the Kakuma refugee camp. Two hundred and forty thousand people. You said uh, numerous African nations have fed into it. So presumably, the, I mean, there are many different languages. They don't all. They can't all communicate. You know, um, unlike we Americans, these people are. They tend to be multilingual. But mm. but yes, there are multiple uh, countries represented and languages spoken. That just to give you. Uh, a sense that the number one population in Kakuma is the South Sudanese. They account for over half hmm. uh, of the population there. And, and that's really because of the fact that Sudan was in civil war for literally a half a century uh, following World War II uh, up to about 10 years ago or so. And then it split into Sudan and South Sudan. So then promptly after that split, South Sudan went into a civil war and has had tribal warfare ongoing from then till now uh, to varying degrees. So the, so the Sudanese make up over half. And then there are Somalians that are the next most common. And then people from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which it has an ongoing civil war. Uh, and then Burundi and Ethiopia are the, are the next two. And then there are a smattering of people from a few other countries. But the people come from these war-torn areas. Uh, they often will have seen family members killed, seen their homes destroyed, burned to the ground. In some cases, they've been recruited as you know, uh, and forced into uh, uh, to be soldiers in wars that they're not interested in being in. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, they've been trafficked, uh, raped, etc. So these people are coming in in, in, a, in a world of hurt. They're traumatized. And um, and so they are they're they're happy simply to have a secure place where they can have a simple shelter and hopefully recover. And uh, so, you know, that's really what that's what life is about. Their their life is fairly proscribed. I mean, uh, they the rules say they can't go out and work in the country, you know, in Kenya. And so they can sometimes pick up a little work working for the NGOs in the camp or starting their own small businesses, perhaps make a little extra money, but they're given the basics and food and water and shelter and schooling and healthcare. Hmm. Uh, uh, but they're, they're very confined and it's very difficult for them to see ways that they can improve their situation. Partly because frankly, the UN doesn't want the refugee camps to be attractive places. Uh, they, if, if they make them too attractive, then more people will come. Uh, I mean, the countries around, as I said, are, they're poor countries, they're uh, in conflict. The UNHCR doesn't wanna start doing things to make it nice, only to have the unintended consequences of having more people flood into the refugee camp. So it's this odd kind of environment where it's kind of a crummy place, uh, mm -hmm. but it's sort of intentionally kept that way. And people are sort of stuck there in this long-term yet temporary kind of location. It's, it's really very sad.
And, and you said the rules don't permit them to work outside of the camp in in the surrounding Kenya. Are there are rules then that uh, as you become part of the refugee situation yes. there that you have to agree to? Yes, exactly. Yeah, they. I mean, they have. Uh, they're issued. Many of them don't have passports, you know, or any identity papers of any kind. Uh, but when they come into the camp, they're registered, they get a refugee identification card. If they were to go try to, Kenya just simply doesn't want the competition. They don't want refugees coming in and competing for jobs in their own country with their own citizens. That's, that's, I mean, you can kind of see that. Obviously, the United mm -hmm. States feels that way as well. So um, that's, that's the situation. So they're very confined in what they can do. And, and as far as who supports it, it's the United Nations? that actually provides the security, provides the food and so forth? Yes, U United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees um, operates the camp and is responsible for those those basic provisions, although they don't directly provide it. They hire contractors to do this, uh, to do most of the work. And uh, the contractors tend to be uh, religious-based organizations, mostly Christian-based organizations. Mm. Uh, the Lutheran World Federation, uh, there's an organization that we partner with uh, on our trip uh, uh, to to Kakuma called National Council of Churches Kenya. Uh, there's the Jesuit Refugee Services, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There, there are multiple NGOs that have a, a Christian foundation that are there. Are there specifically Christian ministries that we would be familiar with there, like a World Vision, Compassion International, something like that? Not that I'm aware of. We're, you know, World Vision, um, you know, when you're in the camp, um, World Vision does sort of long-term development work, right? They would go into a village in a remote place that is poor. They would improve the, you know, water and sanitation and the, help people to grow better crops and, you know, healthcare, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what they do. That's really not what the, uh, they're not allowed to do that kind of thing in the in the refugee camp. Uh, so see, hmm. see, that's the irony of it. If this were not a refugee camp, you would, you, you know, no doubt would have yeah. world, world vision and, and multiple other organizations saying, let's, you know, make this a better place, but that's, that's not allowed. So all you can do, all the, the NGOs can do is provide the very basic services. And ironically, as you said, they, they, they keep it intentionally sort of a little bit on the margins so that people do not get too comfortable, so they don't see it as a long-term solution. And yet, uh, I think in your article you say that there are, in some cases, generations of families that end yes. up there. They, they want to look at it as just sort of you're passing through for a while to maybe, as you say, to be a refugee for a while, but uh, it's not so easy to go back. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I keep looking in the news to see if perhaps the civil war in South Sudan is is slowing down, is simmering down to see if the conflict in Somalia is is slowing down. It doesn't seem to be. Ethiopia, you know, Tigray, there's some hope of a peace there. Perhaps some of the Ethiopians could go back if that if that holds, you know. But in general, uh, yeah, people have been there long term because the number one solution for them is repatriation to their country. And their country is still not safe. And so they, you know, they would rather stay in this kind of miserable environment than go back to an unsafe place that they that they came from. 
My guest today on His People is Mr. Stan Didums. He retired this year from Bank of America after 38 years. He's fulfilled his requirements for an M.A. degree in humanitarian and disaster leadership at Wheaton College, and we're talking about his article, A Week in Kakuma Refugee Camp, Glimpses of Hope. Well, tell us, Mr. Didums, why it is that you went to the refugee camp. What did you do there? Uh, well, I went uh, as a part of a team of four people with uh, International Association for Refugees, uh, which you mentioned earlier that I'm on the board of. And uh, the purpose of the trip was uh, to respond to requests from a local uh, multi-church organization uh, for pastoral education and for a livelihoods program. Uh, what, what IAFR tries to do is partner with local churches, local organizations, uh, where refugees are, and essentially take their priorities to be IFR's priorities. And so in a, in a process of, of many years of working with local pastors in Kakuma, uh, they have expressed interest in theological education, uh, trauma care education, and more recently, in, uh, in, in, in helping their women to start small businesses so they can earn a little extra income. And uh, so the trauma uh, training, trauma care training, theological training have been ongoing over several years. Uh, so IFR has brought uh, theology professors, psychology professors to Kakuma to provide training to the pastors. Uh, the pastors organization, by the way, is over 160 churches. Wow. Um, they're so in the refugee we, camp. Yes, in but, the refugee camp, and also a few in the surrounding community. Mm -hmm. The local Turkana tribe is is nearby, uh, and um, but the 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 idea I was there specifically uh, to to uh, assess the need for uh, the uh, the program to help women with small businesses to do a little training, a little listening on starting small businesses. And um, so that was that was my primary role. Uh, there's there were also just meetings, uh, sort of strategic meetings with the pastors organization. Uh, there was also a dedication of a building that IFR assisted them to build, which um, houses uh, classrooms for uh, children's summer sort of VBS type programs uh, and uh, and Christian education for the pastors as well. So. Uh, it was a little bit of a mix of of all those things uh, involved in the trip. So you had a, a sort of played a role in helping women there. At least some of them start. I think some people have called it micro enterprise. Is that right? Or helping them to start small businesses? Do I understand that correctly? Yes, that's right. That's uh, that's that that was the uh, that was the objective. That is the objective. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, and we're early in the process. The, the request, you know, certainly to help with that kind of thing is, is loud and clear. Uh, you know, we were there to try to understand uh, more operationally, more practically, how could we partner with them to make this happen? And part of that was meetings with women. We had uh, two separate meetings with a total of about 140 women uh, to listen to them and have them tell us what they wanted to do, what kind of businesses they thought would make sense in their neighborhood, in their market, or whatever. So that was that was part of the process um, with development work or with uh, this kind of work, micro enterprise work, in a 
foreign culture, I mean, it, their culture is so different from ours and their, you know, understanding of money and, and business is so different from ours. And so it's going to be a slow process. I, I would say, uh, you know, I would love to, as an American, uh, go in and, and accomplish a lot mm -hmm. in a short period of time. Uh, but uh, we have to be patient. Uh, we started the process in this trip, got a lot of good feedback. I think I had some good conversations with our partners and we'll continue pushing ahead, uh, you know, to hopefully get to um, a program that, that makes sense for them. Do you plan to go back? I hope so. Yes. This is my second trip, I should oh. say. The fir first one was in March of 2020. Okay. Uh, so this yeah. Now, does your background, your extensive background in what you did in banking, does that does that come into play? In other words, does the Lord use that? Is the Lord using that part of your your story, your background in what you're doing here with refugees in Kakuma? Yes. I mean, I, I spent my whole career in a lending environment, mostly mm -hmm. lending to larger businesses, but right. the, the principles apply. And um, certainly that's that's helpful. I also did a lot of research you know, as a part of this, just in preparation for going to Kakuma uh, and trying to 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 get a livelihoods program started, I, I I read a number of books and just did my research to get up to speed on what it means to to practice microenterprise in a completely different cultural environment. So, uh, but but my background is certainly helpful uh, to some degree. And and, and certainly uh, most of us would have no understanding of what, what you said a, a couple of minutes ago, how different the cultures are. I'm trying to bridge that between the culture of the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya and the culture that we all know here uh, in the United States, or at least most of the people that are listening to this are in the U.S. Can, can you help us to understand maybe what some of those cultural differences look like? Yeah, one thing that we have to be very conscious of is that uh, they, uh, you know, we want the local organization to be a in a position to take the lead. I mean, we're sitting here in the U.S., thousands of miles away. There's no way we can possibly run uh, some sort of micro lending program in a refugee camp that we only visit perhaps once a year or something, mm -hmm. right? So they need to take the lead. And yet, when we go there, just because of the uh, dominant, you know, white European American culture, they, anything we say, they're going to have a tendency to agree with. You know, they're going to nod their heads. Hmm. They're going to say, yes, you know, whatever uh, I say, whatever, you know, this guy, Didums, you know, the former banker says, that's what we're going to agree to. But we don't really want that. So, so the, the, you know, what we're trying to do is be much more sensitive to where they're coming from and try to be active listeners uh, try to pull out from them what they think is really important and what they think the issues are, what they already know that they're not telling us, you know. So there's there's that whole communication dynamic that I think is one of the biggest cultural differences. And they they tend to have a um, a, a communication style that's uh, known to be a high context. In other words, if they say something in one context, it means one thing, and they say something in another context, it means another thing. So it's it's difficult. We have to be very attentive to sort of reading between the lines and understanding what's behind the words rather than just taking things at face value. So there is English being spoken. Yes, definitely. Uh, they uh, our, our, our meetings with the leadership uh, are in English. Um, there was 
when I say the leadership, think of a group of six or seven uh, senior pastors that are leading this group of 160 churches. Uh, one of them did not speak English very well, and, and and we had a translator for that. But the others spoke English reasonably well. Um, when we went to the meetings with the women, uh, they were, were definitely translators, and in one case, two translators, because uh, the women are not that are not that proficient in English. Most of them they spoke Swahili and Arabic in in most mm. cases. So so in 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 some meetings, translation; in others, not. <laughs> So what were some of the most meaningful memories or situations that you had that, uh, as you look back on it? The thing that sticks the most in my mind is the worship service that I participated mm. in. And um, I was warned in advance, fortunately, that I would be expected to preach. Uh, <sighs> this is, this is uh, apparently common for any Westerners that are going to Kakuma hmm. Uh, to uh, partner, you know, to, to work with this organization of churches, that they will invite us, every member of the team, whether you're a preacher or not, to go and preach in their churches. So the four of us were divided up and went to four separate churches. And the, the, the church service that I went to was just wonderful. It was two and a half hours. Uh, the pastor told me right at the beginning what the order of the service was. And I remember distinctly there was a singing part of the service, and then later there was a dancing part of the service, which one doesn't see that often in an American church. <laughs> I thought it was actually wonderful. Um, and they were very enthusiastic and very spirit-filled mm -hmm. uh, Christians in that church worshiping God, and a lot of joy in the face of the circumstances that I, you know, I mentioned earlier. So... Uh, you know, I think we should not think of them as being uh, people that God has forgotten. Or <laughs> we yeah. should not think of them certainly as people that are being punished. You know, for something they are—they are loved by God. Mm -hmm. They are joyful in their worship, and they find hope in their faith. And uh, so that that worship service was probably the best example of uh, of hope. In the amongst the church in Kakuma. Well, there's so much to ask you, of course, about the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, and thank you for giving us such a, a, a feel for it. I mean, at least in terms of as much as we can in a short conversation, where you have 240,000 people living in a refugee camp in a in an African nation, uh, in the refugee camp composed of people from various nations. But you retired this year, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning, from 38 years in the banking industry. If I can ask you, how did the Lord lead you to pursue this particular degree? Perhaps people haven't heard of a degree in humanitarian and disaster leadership. How do you sense Him leading you in that respect? Uh, well, it was it really uh, started with the uh, first trip that I I had to Kakuma. Uh, it was in beginning of March of 2020, and uh, just before everything kind of closed down for the pandemic, mm -hmm. but. At that time, I was uh, I was just invited, mainly as an observer, to to learn and see what was going on in Kakuma, uh, as a guest of IEFR, and so I went on that trip. You know, after seeing the refugee camp, after meeting with the uh, the local organization, um, I'd say God started nudging me that, hey, this is something that you need to think about. Uh, and um, 
that was influential in my next decision, which was to go back to school and uh, get my master's in humanitarian disaster leadership at Wheaton. So I actually applied within about a month after coming back from Kakuma. Hmm. Thank this, by the way, the for me, the pandemic was kind of a blessing because for my job, I used to travel weekly almost, and uh, travel was no longer being done. So I had some time in the evenings and was able to contemplate doing this online program. So. I applied to and began the uh, uh, HDL program at Wheaton in August of 2020, so just a few months after the trip to Kakuma, and um, completed that program here just recently. That first trip really led to the second trip uh, mm -hmm. and um, and also led to, I guess, people starting to hear that I was interested in refugees, uh, led to world relief. Uh, invited me to be on their advisory board and has led to other inquiries and things that, um, you know, wouldn't have come up otherwise. So I, 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 I got to hand it to God for, mm. you know, being instrumental in taking me on that trip as a, a pure observer initially and uh, sort of prodding me to get, uh, get myself better educated. And, and now I don't really know where this is going to take me. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to be humble and to listen. And when people come to me and say, hey, could you do this or could you do that? Uh, you know, because we understand you're interested in refugees. I'm trying to say yes. And that's that's really what I'm that's mm. really what I'm doing. How did you get interested in refugees? You're on the board of directors of the International Association for Refugees. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I really was until just the last couple of years. Mm. Uh, it, if you think about it, though, I, I, I mean, the Bible certainly tells us, has this theme throughout of caring for people that are on the margins, the widows, the orphans, the poor. I mean, and if you think about it, um, who is who better exemplifies that than refugees? I mean, they're often traumatized, they're poor, uh, they often don't even have citizenship or you know any documentation to prove that they're uh, you know uh, they're they're sort of um homeless in the worst possible sense not even having a country uh to live in so i mean it's it's sort of the worst of all possible worlds and just to me kind of exemplifies the kind of people that god would like us to be looking out for and giving our attention to and supporting and so uh you know, I, I I have a little bit of a balanced portfolio, if you will. I, I'm with IAFR, which primarily works with refugees outside the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, where they are located in places like Kakuma and uh, around the world. And then I also have World Relief, which takes inbound refugees coming to the U.S. Uh, who are being placed here and uh, World Relief kind of upholds them and supports them through the first few months of their uh, resettlement in the U.S. And so I, 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 work, I get to work with refugees and support refugees both abroad and, and here at home. Are, are you open if something uh, should develop in, in the full-time capacity? I am, sure. How about your family? Are they on board with it too? I mean, so often you think about uh, re retirement t tends to uh, tilt toward, understandably, rest and, and pursuing more recreational pursuits. Not that you're not doing that as well, but um, 
is is everybody uh, in agreement with what you're doing? Uh, yes, my uh, my wife retired a little before me, mm. uh, a, couple, a year or two before me, uh, and she's um, you know she's fairly busy because she does her own volunteer things. She's an academic and she's a editor of a journal, scholarly journal, and some other things. So uh, uh, we also uh, watch our granddaughter. Mm. Um, Three days a week, so that's a blessing to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. but yeah, my, my 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 kids are all grown and um, successfully launched. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you know, my wife and I are you know d together in our own ways, trying to serve the Lord in this phase of our lives. And um, I, I I don't I, I again I don't have it figured out, and I I don't really I'm trying not to feel any pressure, <laughs> put any pressure on myself. To figure it out, I mean, I, I'm, I acknowledge that it's really God who accomplishes things through me, not me on my own. So, um, so I'm just I'm just waiting to see. I guess I between my volunteer work and these two boards, you know, I'm maybe sort of a quarter, a third of the time occupied. I have plenty of time for fun stuff on the side. Right. If that were to go to 100%, that'd be okay with me. Uh, I'm I'm 62. I'm blessed to be able to. Uh, to do things without needing income at this point. So uh, I, I feel like a lot of flexibility and just trying to see what God has for me. I'm just wondering, is there anybody in particular currently or in church history that's particularly influenced you or inspired you? The person that leaps to mind, actually, um, is uh, the the president of IEFR, mm. a guy named Tom Albinson. He's, he's been in this refugee field for a long time. Um, he started out decades ago smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, so he's had a, a long and interesting hmm. uh, career. But you know, I think one of the things that he taught me was that there's a need in the refugee space for uh, working through local churches and supporting local churches that are refugee-led and uh, that, you know, despite the many, many NGOs that are out there, and many are Christian NGOs, um, that was a, an area of opportunity, an area of need, and uh, kind of a niche that um, that IFR has has taken to heart and tried to fill it to the to the best of our ability. So. Mr. Didams, I know our time is uh, nearly up today, but you wrote the piece, A Week in Kakuma Refugee Camp, Glimpses of Hope. What were those glimpses of hope? You, you know, when refugees come to Kakuma and they have nothing and they're traumatized, it is interesting to see that one of the first things they do is they find a congregation, they find a group of Christians to worship with. Mm. You know, what that makes me realize is that our worship, our faith, is really the main thing that gives us hope. I mean, we may not recognize that in a wealthy country that we live in, but if you don't have anything, that's what you cling to. That's what you put as your top priority. And, and you will see people in Kakuma who have arrived recently meeting under a tree, 50 or 100 people, for a worship service and praising God and singing. And that gives me hope. That's a sign of hope, even in very terrible circumstances. 
You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Stan Didems, who recently retired from 38 years with Bank of America. You can read his piece, A Week in Kakuma Refugee Camp, Glimpses of Hope, by going to ChristianityToday.com. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Neil Shenvey with a reasoned approach to the truth of Christianity. We hear the gospel, we immediately recognize our own situation. We're like, yes, I know I messed up. And we also know that, you know, the stuff we're trying to fix our problem, I go to therapy, I do this, I do that. Maybe they're helpful, but they don't address the guilt. They don't address the need. And so we hear the gospel, we think, this is, I know it's true. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.